Church, it's uh, a pleasure and a joy to be with you again this morning. Our text for this morning is Psalm 15. If you would, would you turn with me to Psalm 15? And uh, one of the things I'm really excited about this morning is that this chapter only has five verses, so I might finally not go over time. Aaron is very gracious, but I am very conscious that I speak for a long time. And I apologize. <laughs> Before we get into our text this morning, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever met someone important, like really important, someone that was memorable, that you remember the meeting? In the early 2000s, I was an intern at the Toronto Film Festival, and I got to meet a couple of guest celebrities. I was a guest relations intern, actually. And so I met or saw, like, Kate Blanchett, you know her, Galadriel from Lord of the Rings, and Jack Black, who's a funny guy, and Nicolas Cage, who used to be an actor in the 90s, but he's coming back now, apparently, with a new movie. <laughs> there were others I don't remember. Robert Downey Jr. was there, but I didn't get to meet him, and he wasn't Iron Man at that time anyways. Celebrities are kind of a big deal in our culture, aren't they? But we can go a step up from there. We're celebrating the Queen's, I think, diamond jubilee, and platinum jubilee. 70 years on the throne, that's a long time. Did you know that there is actually official protocol for meeting royalty? You can find it on Canada.ca, the government's official website. And it tells you how to address them, what words to use when you first meet, what words to use thereafter, how you may dress, like men can wear hats during the day, but not in the evening. Women can get, wear gloves, but men can't. It's, it's serious business. Apparently, if you're meeting a royal, if you have an official audience with a royal, you're not allowed to turn your back to them. You maintain eye contact and back away. They're like bears in that way. And we can laugh about these things because we live in a culture where equality is championed, where we are informal. But if you're a student of history, you know that this hasn't always been the case. In many cultures of the world, through most of history, there's been great disparity between people like nobility and common people. And if someone who's normal or common came before nobility without following the proper protocol, without showing the right respect, it was off with their heads. It was serious business to come before nobles or celebrities or important people in the past. But we can go up a step from there. What about entering the presence of God? Most cultures through most of history have had all kinds of detailed ritual, washings, purifications, um, sacrifices, all manner of litany before you could come into the presence of God because it didn't get higher than that. Israel in the Old Testament, the, the culture that this psalm was written for was much like that. The system of worship was geared around showing people what a serious and awesome and holy thing it was to come in the presence of the living God. And so whether you look at the tabernacle, the tent of meeting that was uh, built under Moses in the wilderness, or whether you look at the temple that David's son Solomon built, there were these concentric circles that people would enter. And the closer you got in, the closer you were to the presence of God. And so there was the outer ring. It was the court of the Gentiles, where uncircumcised Gentiles could come to. But there was a plaque saying that they shouldn't pass that point on pain of death. This wasn't like trying to sneak into a first-class airport lounge. This was serious business. 
And then within the court of the Gentiles was the court of the women, where the women and the children of Israel, who were part of the covenant community, could come to worship, even closer to the presence of God. And within the court of women was the court of Israel, the court of the men, where all the men of Israel who were circumcised, who had been taught the law and the prophets and the writings, who had become sons of the covenant, which is what bar mitzvah means, were allowed to enter and stand in the presence of the temple of God. They could see the temple with their own eyes and worship the living God of the universe through whom they had access through the temple. But beyond the court of the men of Israel was the temple itself. And to enter the temple, you had to be a priest. You had to have been born to the tribe of Levi, to a priestly family. You had to be prepared your whole life. You had to undergo ritual purification. You had to be taught and instructed. And then you might be able to go in once in a while, maybe a couple of times in your life, to burn incense within the temple of God. If you remember um, Luke 1, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, was a priest. And he was burning incense. He was chosen by lot. It was his turn for his lifetime to go into the temple of God to worship, to stand that close to the presence of God. But there was one person, only one person in, in the world at any given time who had the all-access pass. And that was the high priest of God's people who once a year on the Day of Atonement, you can read about it in Leviticus 16, once a year he would sacrifice these unblemished animals and take their blood as an atonement for his sin and the sin of the people. Atonement is a funny word. It was actually invented in the 16th century by a guy named William Tyndale, one, the first major guy to try and translate the Bible into English. And he was trying to con like convey the meaning of this Hebrew word that he, I guess, figured didn't have an English word that matched it. Uh, a word where because of an action, there was a reconciliation, a coming back together of two estranged parties. And so he picked at one month. Atonement makes God and man at one again. And reconciles a broken relationship. And so with the blood of these goats and bulls, the high priest would enter to sprinkle and, uh, and make atonement for his own sin as a sinful man and for the people of Israel. But this was such a big deal that he actually had little bells sewn into his clothes. And he had a rope tied around his foot so that if he happened to have unconfessed sin and died before the holiness of the presence of God, his fellow priests could hear that their bells weren't tinkling anymore and pull him out without having to go in past this thick curtain that separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the presence of God was said to dwell. Entering the presence of God is a very big deal. And at its root, this is because God is holy holy he always does what is good and right and just he will not tolerate sin to remain in its in his presence before the holiness of god before his spotless purity and incorruptible character the punishment for sin has always been and will always be death so those animals that were sacrificed day after day, year after year, were vivid, living reminders to the people of God's mercy. Because they, for their sins, deserved to die. 
But the God of the Bible is a God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who allowed an innocent to die in their place, an innocent animal to die in the place of a person created in the image of God, whom God loved. And so there's this like double helix DNA to God's character. There's holiness and there's love and mercy and holiness and love and mercy. And they just build up and build up through the pages of the Old Testament. Even so, entering the presence of God was a big deal. And that's our big idea this morning. Living before the presence of a holy God is serious business. Entering the presence of God as a sinful human being, is a very, very big deal. In fact, last year, Josiah was doing a little series for us on worship, and he preached from Leviticus 10, the story of two priests, Aaron's sons. One of them was due to take over the high priesthood. They were allowed to enter the temple, but they came in with an, with an air of familiarity and presumption without following the proper, proper protocol, and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died because of how big a deal it is to stand in the presence of holy God. So with this little bit of context in mind, church, would you read with me Psalm 15? I'm going to start at the top, where one usually starts. Psalm 15, who shall dwell on your holy hill? A Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put his money out at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So again, church, it's 3,000 years ago when this psalm was written, more or less. It was written to a people for whom being with royalty was a big deal. And being in the presence of God was maybe the, the honor and fear of a lifetime. But this psalm is a little bit countercultural because that culture had become very much a culture of protocol and ritual, a culture where people crossed their T's and dotted their I's so they wouldn't fall dead in the presence of God. But what David is writing here about living in the presence of God has nothing to do with protocol and nothing to do with ritual. It's all about the heart. It's about a life that flows out of a certain kind of heart. It's about how people live outside of the temple and outside of the presence as they understood it it's about what's going on on the inside and not about what we do with our bodies in worship burning the right incense bringing the right sacrifice and this is not what the average israelite heard but what david wrote three thousand or so years ago and what through him the holy spirit wrote is absolutely essential for us to hear this morning because the same god that david worshiped is the God we worship. He is just as holy. He is just as righteous. He is just as sovereign. He is just as loving. He has the same requirements of his people. And so we see that living in the presence of God is a big deal. 
And our first point this morning is that living in the presence of God is a big deal because God desires integrity of heart. There's two ways to understand integrity. One way, and uh, there are math experts here. I'm not a math expert, so I'm hoping I'm not shooting myself in the foot. But I think an integer, same root as integrity, is a whole number. Maybe not. I hope it is. Integrity has to do with a sense of wholeness, of completeness, of being one and not divided. Integrity also has to do with a sense of, again, this undividedness, not being two-faced, not being different on the inside than you are on the outside, different in public than you are in private. And we are going to briefly touch on both these aspects of integrity. And so living in the presence of God is a big deal because God desires integrity of heart, purity in our inner beings. God desires us to be one, whole, and wholly committed to him. Do you see this in our text? Read with me verses 1 and 2, would you? O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Church, if you're anything like me, you might be discouraged off the bat. Who here could stand up and say, I am blameless. I speak the truth in my heart. I am righteous. Well, I can't. But the good news is that David couldn't, Peter. Scripture gives us detailed and at times embarrassing looks at his life. We see his sin and we see his failure. And yet, God calls him a man after God's own heart. God calls him blameless in his sight. And that's because of that sense. The word that's used here for blameless is not a word that means sinless perfection. If God were looking for the perfect, he would find no one. The, this word also has to do with wholeness, with being one. And people like Abel, people like Abraham, people like Moses were people whose hearts were wholly turned to God. David was very much such a person. We see how he failed. We see him be, to be a murderer. We see him to be an adulterer. We see him mess up with his kids. But when his sin is pointed out, he doesn't care what other people think. He cares about what God thinks. When he faces trial, he doesn't live to please men. He lives to please God. His life is wholly committed to God. And that is the kind of heart and the life flowing out of that heart that God is looking for. Proverbs 4.23, it's a verse worth memorizing if you don't have it yet, talks about guarding our hearts because out of the heart flows the springs of life really important concept for understanding how God deals with his people. Christian, what is your life? What is your heart marked by? If someone were to ask your spouse or your kids what really excites you, what, what just brings you so much joy, what you pursue with your time, what you run and slip away to in your spare time, what would they say? Is your life marked by a love and a pursuit and a hunger for God or for other things? Are you the same on the inside as you are on the outside? Are your words, your passions, your jokes, the things you laugh at the same on Sunday morning as they are through the rest of the week? 
I was talking to a brother this week who mentioned that for periods in his life, his Bible, he, he brought his Bible to church on Sunday and then it sat unopened through the rest of the week. He followed God on Sunday, but didn't think about him too much maybe through the rest of the week. Is this you this morning? How you look on the outside, how things seem to be to others looking in matters nothing to God. Outward appearance is worthless. Living to maintain appearances is an absolute waste of time to God. God is looking at the heart. He desires hearts that are marked by integrity. Because out of the heart flow the streams of life. Christian, if your life doesn't flow out of a transformed heart, it's doing nothing for you before God. But this doesn't mean that our actions count for nothing. Because what scripture says over and over is that a transformed heart will always lead to a transformed life. Do you see that in our, in our text? When our heart is different, when our heart is turned toward God, our lives will be different. The lives that flow out of that heart will reflect the work God is doing in that heart. Would you read with me verses 2 into verse 3? Who shall dwell in the presence of God? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In other words, this kind of heart is marked not by gossip or slander, not by trying to put other people down so we can get ahead. This heart and the life that flow out of this heart are marked by, marked by care and gentleness with our words. The integrity of a person's heart will be reflected in the words they use, in the person's speech. They will be marked by lifting others up, not tearing others down. So Christian, what marks your speech? Do your words bring life, encourage, build up? Or do your words tear down? Are your words the same before all audiences? God is looking for integrity of heart. Let's read on in verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. The blameless person, the person whose heart is marked and touched by God, is someone who reflects God's attitude toward evil in their life. The people they listen to, the people they follow, the people they laugh at, the people their heart are, is drawn to and their life is drawn to are not people who, like the fool in Psalm 14 that we looked at a few weeks ago, reject God. This person honors the people who fear God because this person's heart is like, reflects God's own heart. Who are the people you follow? Who are the people you listen to and laugh at? The influences we allow into our life will shape who we are. Are they people who honor God? Let's read on in verse 5. Or sorry, the second part of verse 4. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. We've been reading through the book of Ruth and studying through the book of Ruth in past Sundays. And Ruth is a little example of this kind of heart. 
in chapter 1, when she loses her husband, and with her husband, the pro- any prospect she had of family or of hope or of security, she could have gone back to her parents, she could have gone back to her people and to the safety that would provide. But instead, she remembers her commitment and clings to her mother-in-law and vows to serve this lady who's even poorer than she is, who has even less prospects than she does, because it's the right thing to do, because she made a vow and she will not break it. And this is the kind of heart this, this line is pointing us to, a heart that remains with integrity, even when it costs a lot, even when there's sacrifice involved. Is this us? read on in verse 5 who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent he who does these things shall never be moved just like everything else in this chapter this points us back to the law of moses for an israelite to charge interest from a brother from a fellow israelite was forbidden and for anyone in power to withhold justice from the poor or the widow or the oppressed people who had no voice and people who had no one to speak for them was detestable to God. God hated this. And so again, we see a heart marked by God's desires, a heart marked by integrity, even when there's a financial cost. The heart God looks for is a heart that refuses to profit from exploiting others. Integrity of heart takes over every aspect of a person's life because out of the heart flow the springs of life. Our actions, our choices, our attitudes, they reflect, they flow from what's inside. Christian, how is your heart? I'm asking some uncomfortable questions. They're pointed questions. Josiah called them punchy questions. But my desire is not to punch or to beat you down. My hope is that these are diagnostic questions for us. There's a tendency in men of a certain age, and I think I'm entering that age, or maybe I'm there already and in denial, to not want to hear what a doctor has to say to them. They don't want to hear bad news because that will reflect on their lives and that might lead to required change in their life. But it's not really wisdom to run away from the truth, is it? If I know there's something wrong with me, I can deal with it. There is wisdom. If I hide and run away, that's just foolishness. I'm hoping these questions this morning will help be a diagnostic for our own hearts as we consider what God requires. So church, we've got to ask, is this us? Is this you? Do you walk blamelessly? Is your heart marked by integrity of speech, integrity of action, integrity in every aspect of life? It's disgraceful how far short I fall. I'm ashamed at how many times I've put people down or cut them down with my words. And justified myself. How many times I've dishonored God's people with my speech. Either because I've misunderstood or because I've been hurt. Or because I think I'm justified in some way. I fall so far short of the integrity God requires of us. Of his people. 
I have not been perfect in anything. My truth is, my walk is far from blameless. How about you? Maybe you're doing better than I am. But the bad news is that I am not the example you are called to live up to. In Matthew 5, Jesus talks about the heart. And uh, he was talking to a people who are conscious of what God requires. And who are wanting to be careful about following the letter of the law. And he says to them, you're careful about not committing adultery. But if you look at a woman in your heart with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Because what God is looking at is the heart. You and I may not have committed murder with our own hands here. But what Jesus says is that if, we've had, if we have had selfish anger toward our brother, if we have called a brother a fool, we have committed murder in our heart because God is looking at the heart. And if your heart is as fraction, as messed up as mine is, then you, like me, fall short. None of us measures up. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from hope? Where do we go for hope? This brings us to our second point this morning. And this is an important point. This brings us to good news. Listen to me. We are slaves to sin. We fall short from the heart God requires. We fall short of the life God requires. But the good news is that the heart God requires, God provides. What you and I cannot produce, what you and I cannot live up to, what you and I cannot strive, cannot claw our way to, no matter how self-disciplined, no matter how good, no matter how careful we are, what God requires doesn't come from our effort. What God requires comes from God. And all we have to do is ask. This is the gospel. And this is awesome news. Like me, you, and every human being fall short. We, we fail to produce the heart God requires of us. We fall short of his glory. But through the Old Testament, he promises that he is going to do this for his people. He promised us to take away hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. He promises to circumcise our hearts to make the requirements of his covenant internal to us. He promises to write his law in our heart and to grave it, engrave it in our minds. He promises to make us new from the inside out. And then 2,000 years ago on the cross, and 40 days later on Pentecost, 50 days later on Pentecost, he delivers on that promise. Remember that double helix, God's love and God's holiness. God's holiness demands punishment for sin. God's holiness, which is integral, like an indispensable part of his character, the core of his character, demands that sin be punished, be accounted for. And you and I, like every person who's ever lived, has contributed tremendously to the tally of sin in this world. But God's love loves you and doesn't want to destroy the creatures he created and loves. And so what God did is he took on flesh and came to live 
on earth as a human being. The only perfect life that ever was. The only life that was truly blameless, that was truly perfect, that was perfectly righteous. And then he laid that life down as a sacrifice for your sin and mine. What the high priest, what the priestly system, the system of sacrifices pointed to. An innocent animal dying in the place of sinners. Christ laid down his life to perfectly fulfill. And as the perfect sacrifice offers to take your sin and mine forever. Even when we keep messing up. Even when we keep falling short. Even when we deserve nothing. Hallelujah. Church, what Jesus says is that if we turn away from sin and turn to him, if we believe in his sacrifice and follow him as our Lord, he will make us new. He forgives us our sins and he restores us to relationship with God. He sends his spirit to work in our hearts, to change our hearts, to circumcise our hearts, to begin transforming us from the inside out and if this is true for you this morning then you are a child of God all that the sacrifices pointed to all that those courts pointed to the distance between sinful man and holy God has been bridged on the cross and you can come to him like your dad pastor Aaron a few weeks ago talked about how no person in their same sane mind, would wake a king in the middle of the night for a glass of water, except for a child of that king. If this is true of you, you are a child of God, of the king of the universe, and you can wake him up figuratively in the middle of the night, no matter how big or small the concern in your heart, you can come to God as your father, and you have direct access There is no sacrifice required. There is no distance required. There is no protocol required. You can come to him with boldness and joy in prayer. The God of the universe offers to be our dad. How awesome is this news? We all fail, but we don't have to measure up. God loves us and has made the way for us. In Christ, we can have the kind of heart God requires. In Christ, we can have his spirit transforming us from within. In Christ, we can have God be the joy of our hearts. And this also does away with shame. We don't have to hide. We don't have to pretend to be someone we are not. If Christ is truly working in us, this gives us so complete freedom to be transparent, to be vulnerable To show others Christ's working in us to point them to hope rather than to put up a facade and pretend that we are what we are not. The heart God requires, the integrity of heart that God requires, God provides is our second point this morning. Praise God. Friend, if this is not true of you, if you hear these words and they seem foreign, If you've been trying so hard all your life to measure up and are frustrated by constantly falling short, I feel for you, friend. But I want to tell you this morning, it's not about you. It's all about Christ. God is committed to producing in you, in each one of his children, the kind of heart God's required, 
the kind of heart God requires. He's committed to producing in us the life that he requires, flowing from within, flowing from transformed hearts. And if this is not a reality in our lives, all we have to do is ask. All we have to do is ask him and he will begin this. Now remember Luke 11, remember Luke 18, sometimes we have to keep asking until it becomes reality. But asking is the rule of the kingdom. That was Spurgeon, that wasn't me. Asking is the way forward, advancing in the kingdom of God happens on our knees. That's Hudson Taylor, that wasn't me either. All we have to do, if this is not true of us, is ask. He is committed to doing good to his children, to giving good gifts to those who who ask. But he calls us to ask. So what we see in Psalm 15 this morning is that living in the presence of God is serious business for sinful man, for corrupt human beings like you and I to come and enter into the presence of holy God who will not tolerate sin is very serious business. But God loves us so much that the punishment that he requires, he paid. That the heart that he requires, he gives. And he invites us to come into fellowship with him and ask and watch and worship as he makes us new. Who can live in the presence of holy, almighty God? In Christ, you can. And I can. Hallelujah.